Hello and welcome to How to Be Fine. I'm Kristen Meinzer. And I'm Jolenta Greenberg. In each episode of How to Be Fine, we weigh in on what's happening in the world of happiness, health, and betterment, and we offer a bit of advice to those who want it. Now, full disclosure, we're not psychologists or psychiatrists, but we are experienced self-help critics. We've lived by the rules of nearly 100 self-help books for our other podcast, By the Book, which is also right here in this feed. So we've tried on almost every kind of wellness trend out there. And besides, we're not here promising to make all of you the best, richest, happiest versions of yourself. You know, if all goes well, we'll just help you feel a little closer to fine. Alrighty, Jolenta, we have a couple of excellent advice letters to get to later in the show. But first, as usual, we're kicking things off with our hot topic. And today we have something I know you already dabble heavily in. Uh-oh, what is it? Today's hot topic is the Buy Nothing Project. Oh, buy nothing. I'm in a buy nothing group. I like use that. Yes, I know you do. I know you will love it as Mm -hmm. do I. But Jolenta, for those who've never heard of Buy Nothing, can you share what you know about it? Right. Buy Nothing is a sharing community, usually in Facebook groups, where you can go if you want to give away things to your neighbors or post about things you're looking for. And it's all free, like it's all exchange based or just giveaway based. And it's sort of built as like an eco friendly way to save money and build community and spread happiness. And each Buy Nothing Facebook group is like pretty local. Like I'm in one for my neighborhood and it's not the same one that Kristen's in. Correct. Correct. Even though you and I live a 10-minute walk from each other. (laughs) Very close to each other. Yes. Yes. It's community care at its finest, or at least it tries to bill itself that way. And I have to say, I've gotten so much joy from it. I've given away tons of things that might have otherwise ended up in a landfill, and I've received everything from birthday cake to furniture (laughs) from its members. But I assume you're about to ruin buy nothing for me. (laughs) I'm not here to ruin it. I promise I'm not. Just here to make me think critically. We're going to think critically, yes. And we're going to do that by discussing some of the many battles being fought in the buy nothing world right now. But before we get to that, just a bit of backstory on Buy Nothing, where it came from, what it's about for people who don't know. It was founded in 2013 by two women in Bainbridge, Washington, named Liesl Clark and Rebecca Rockefeller. At the time, Rockefeller was a poor single mom using the upcycling group FreeCycle to find things she needed. She also tried to give back by offering things like plant clippings on FreeCycle, but the group's moderator deemed her gifts unacceptable. Fortunately, Clark did not. The two became friends and decided to start their own alternative to FreeCycle, which they called Buy Nothing Bainbridge, and they hosted the group on Facebook. The idea took off, and within six months, they created 78 local Buy Nothing groups with more than 12,000 members, giving away everything from appliances to dryer lint. Thousands more local groups followed with volunteer administrators all over the world. 
And in 2020, Clark and Rockefeller even penned a self-help book called The Buy Nothing, Get Everything Plan, Discover the Joys of Spending Less, Sharing More, and Living Generously. All right. So far, this all sounds fine to me. Like all good intentions, no CD underbelly. Oh, just wait. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to talk about five issues that have divided the world of buy nothing, beginning with issue number one, which is labor. You know how I just said that the sites are volunteer run? Mm -hmm. Well, buy nothing admins, most of whom are women, are all unpaid volunteers. And while some of these admins happily dedicate only a small amount of time to their local group, Others admit to working well over 40 hours a week, including the two founders. Some of them say it's like having a second and third full-time job. Some of them say they feel taken advantage of, that their altruism is really just being hijacked and used against them, that what they do is dehumanizing in a lot of ways. In other words, buy nothing is yet another corner of the world relying on women's free labor to function, and those women are not always happy. Of course, women are carrying the buy nothing group on their backs. What's the second issue, Kristen? The second issue is what some members and the founders themselves have apologetically called redlining. As you may know, Jolenta, one of the original rules of Buy Nothing groups was that they could never have more than 1,000 members. Once they did, they had to split. This was supposed to keep the group small and encourage neighbors to actually become friends. But when splits have happened, they've almost always divided neighbors along racial and socioeconomic lines because mm. that's the way maps work, right? right? If you say, oh, you know, everybody on this side of Washington is now in Buy Nothing East Prospect Heights, and everybody on this other side of Washington is now by nothing Prospect Heights West, historically speaking, Washington, I'm speaking of my own neighborhood here, mm -hmm. was the dividing line. And there was the right side and the wrong side of Washington. I'm saying that in quotes because mm -hmm. of the socioeconomic divides, because of the historic redlining. And it is an issue that has caused great outrage in the buy nothing world. It has driven some admins to quit in protest. One group in Boston even shut down, and it had thousands of members. Whoa. So it's been really upsetting, and I will admit, I myself have been frustrated at times about this. Like, am I only now, now that my group keeps getting smaller and smaller, am I only going to be giving gifts to people who live in the new doorman buildings across the street from Right, me? right. And you yeah. know those doorman buildings are for rich people, Jolenta. They are big, and they are fancy. Yes, yes. They just went up in the last few years, and it's like, oh my gosh. That's pretty much my group, it seems like now. Right, right. Wow. Yep. And segregation is not in the spirit of, you know, community and togetherness. No, it is not what Clark and Rockefeller originally were aiming for. And to their credit, they did apologize and mm -hmm. they did form an equity team in 2019 to figure out how to create, in their words, an actively anti-racist and anti-oppression culture within Buy Nothing. But this gets to issue number three. Okay. Their equity team found a lot of issues beyond redlining. For example, they found that some local admins were letting people offer racist items like Confederate flags on Buy Ooh. Nothing. In several instances, when people of color complained, they were accused of, quote, incivility and thrown out of mm. their own groups. In other cases, Members attacked admins of color for expressing any concern about this racist stuff at all. No. So it was not good. Yeah, this is getting worse and worse. <laughs> it definitely is. 
And Clark and Rockefeller, they, they didn't ignore it. They were like, oh, this is terrible. But then they tried to come up with a solution that maybe wasn't the best one. And this leads us to issue number four. They figured the way to fix all of this was to take things off of Facebook because, as we all know, Facebook incentivizes content that's inflammatory, right? That's upsetting, and so those posts with racist that are getting language, tons of engagement. Yes, exactly. They're and rising to the top of the page. And, exactly, yeah. exactly. So Clark and Rockefeller said, "Let's create our own buy nothing app." But the problem is, for their buy nothing app, they were asking buy nothing members to donate money to it, which goes completely no. against the ethos of buy nothing. As you said from the get-go, Jolenta, money never changes hands in buy nothing. Right. There's no yeah. money buy in Buy nothing here. is about buying nothing with money. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So understandably, members were outraged. The idea was tabled for a time. And then they got some real investors, some real backers, some real experts and technologists involved. And they tried to relaunch the app again in November 2021. And this leads us to issue number five. And that would be our final issue. Yes. As part of their new app business, Clark and Rockefeller trademarked the phrases Buy Nothing and Buy Nothing Project. And they have been shutting down Facebook groups using the same name. And as a result, many buy-nothing groups in recent months have renamed themselves and done their best to distance themselves from Clark and Rockefeller. So while the two founders successfully created something with over 7 million people, eventually a lot of those people have stepped away from buy-nothing, and only a fraction of them, not even 100,000, are currently even trying their app right now. I didn't even know there was one. Like, Nobody wants to use the yeah. app. I'm sorry, Clark and Rockefeller, uh. but... But if I'm using no, the I, app... I don't want to download another Yeah. I, I don't want an app. I don't want an app. And it's not neighborly anymore, is it? Because yeah. the new app pretty much allows you to interact with anybody and not your neighborhood anymore. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So the app has a lot of issues. Wow. I mean, who would have thought that something so wholesome as like giving and community building could be so ugly sometimes? It's really unfortunate. It, it makes me sad. Yeah. So now that you know all of this, do you think you're going to keep using your Buy Nothing group? Honestly, yeah, I, I am going to keep using it. I mean, I completely understand why some folks don't want to be a part of Buy Nothing anymore. Mm -hmm. I empathize with those who feel Clark and Rockefeller have mishandled everything. They really have mishandled a lot of stuff. And I absolutely abhor the fact that racism has been allowed to run amok at times in certain groups. I, I think that's reprehensible. Right. But personally, this is me being very selfish and individualistic here. But personally, uh -oh. I have gotten more good than bad out of my group. And I think that's partly because I've come up with my own workarounds. You know, like that redlining we talked about earlier, that segregation of rich versus poor. I've tried to find workarounds, for example, by primarily working with people in my Buy Nothing group who I know are volunteers working with the asylum seekers in my neighborhood or with mm. school teachers. Right. That way I know I'm giving my things to people who maybe need it more than those people in those new million-dollar doorman buildings across the street from me. And it warms my heart to know that maybe the things that I'm giving away can help somebody have a slightly better life rather than just one more decoration in their house. And so right. that makes me feel good. It makes me feel good that things aren't going to the rubbish bin. Right. And then 
Occasionally, sometimes I will accept food items that people are listing, and that's because I'm very active in my community fridge, and I'll grab those food items and I'll I'll bring them to the fridge because I know that hungry people go there many, many times a day, and that may be the only meal they get today. So I try to be a good user of buy nothing, and I think that, at least in my case, I can still feel good about being a part of it. What other people want to do, that's up to them. Jolenta, I'm curious about you. How do you feel about buy nothing knowing all this? Well... Now that I know all this, I'm a little torn. You know me, Kristen. I love to burn it down. I love to like <laughs> leave a group in a huff. And like also, I've been lurking more than active lately. So part of me is like, I could drop out in solidarity and like not really be missing much. But then there is a part of me that like, it's so satisfying to like give something away that you know you were going to like either toss out or like maybe leave on your stoop and like hope someone took it. Mm -hmm. And I love having an option to like give it to someone locally who, you know, can tell you why they want it. And it's always sort of fun to do like a random number generator raffle and give give stuff away. Oh, yeah. Because like 12 people are like, I want it. I want it. I want it. And then (laughs) you have to go like, well, I let it simmer for a few days. And now like I'm using a random number generator. And yay. Um, Like it's really nice to know that stuff is getting used like. Like in your neighborhood and maybe you interacted with someone that you might run into at the grocery store. But I don't think I'd miss it right now. So if a lot of people are leaving, I would definitely do it in solidarity. Mm. Does that make me sound like a weird pushover? No, it doesn't. It doesn't at all. I mean, I think this is one of those things where it's like we can do our best to be responsible and equitable members of Buy Nothing. We can drop right. out of Buy Nothing. Yeah. I would just say, hopefully, if you're staying in Buy Nothing, you're not turning your back on any of these issues, but being mindful of them. Right, you know? right. Yeah, staying that's, that's aware what I of that suggest. is the best way to, to do it and stay in. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm curious about what our listeners think. Uh, yes. What are your thoughts on Buy Nothing groups? Are you a fan? Do you use Buy Nothing? Have you left a Buy Nothing group? You can write to us at kristenangelenta at gmail.com or you can weigh in at our Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash kristenangelenta. You can also use those methods to contact us with advice questions. Speaking of which, coming up, we hear from a letter writer in need of some wedding advice. Alrighty, we are back with our first listener letter of the day. Jolenta, what do they have to say? All right. Our letter writer says, Dear Kristen and Jolenta, I'm writing in to ask for some advice for my upcoming weddings. Yes, plural. Some context. I'm an American living in South Korea with my husband, who is Korean. We'll be having a Korean wedding in May and a wedding in South Florida in December. Since we're having two weddings, we don't have a lot of money to play around with. I remember hearing and or reading about both of your weddings. They seemed so fun and so uniquely you. Kristen, in particular, your wedding sounded very laid back and like a total blast. Plus, I think you had a gold dress. I love that. I'm worried because my budget is small and my party won't be as fun as other family members who've had much more extravagant weddings. I know I'm probably worrying too much. I just want everyone to have a good time in both locations. I'd love to hear your advice. (gasps) 
Oh, Jolenta, I love this letter yes. so much, partly because, okay, I feel like we're perfect for this for two reasons. Well, I feel like you are in particular. No, you are because you actually had two weddings also. Right. But you <laughs> had like the most fun wedding that I've been to in a long time that also like happened to be quite low budget. Yes. So, okay. All right. We both have advice to give here, clearly. True. But Jolenta, do you want to start because sure. you had the two yeah. weddings? Yes, I'll start. I did the dual wedding thing because my partner and I are from the West Coast and we live on the East Coast. We had a formal wedding for family out West and a more informal party wedding at a bar back in New York because, to be honest, we wanted to celebrate with our friends without having to ask them to fly across the country. We so, appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Kristen was one of the New York party friends. Yes, and it was only like three blocks from my house, too. Oh, right. Yeah, so I didn't so even have to, to take house. a car or a subway. I literally walked three blocks to oh, that. Yeah. yeah, it was like extra convenient for Kristen. Yes. Um, so making things memorable is what I'm going to hit first. I recommend taking inspiration from your relationship to each location. You're having both of your weddings in such unique and different locations that I think just sort of leaning into being in Florida or leaning into being in Korea really helps make the wedding memorable. My wedding guests at my Oregon wedding loved a map I made of Portland that highlighted just some of my favorite little local places to go to. And our Brooklyn guests loved the super local ice cream that we served that had like candy and pretzels and potato chips in it. So the things that stood out were also things we like loved about our surroundings where we were having the wedding. And when it comes to saving a bit of money, if you have any friends in either location that can be vendors, this can help cut costs. That's one of the main things that helped us. We were very lucky. My partner and I have a close friend who ran a very cool sandwich shop at the time, and he provided the catering at a friends and family discount. And also for our informal party back in Brooklyn, we booked it as a party and not a wedding mm -hmm. because the word wedding often makes prices go up, up, up because they're like, oh, all of a sudden we're in our wedding price brackets as opposed to our just like you're having a gathering price brackets. So if you can get away with it, I definitely recommend saying you're just a party. Yes, I 100% agree with that. I love the advice about embracing what's local. Embrace why you're getting married there. It's not just because you're from there or you've lived there. It's because there are special things about that place. So I think that advice is so great, Jolenta. Also, I just want to add that something you and I both did, your Brooklyn wedding, my only wedding, which was also a Brooklyn wedding, only like two blocks from where yours was, Yeah, both you and Brad and Dean and I, we chose a bar and you chose more of a cocktail bar. I chose more of a bar that's kind of a music venue slash yeah, comedy like dancing club space. Slash, yeah. So what we each did was we approached the bar, said, yeah, we want to have a party here. We want to do it during your less busy hours. We know that in New York, the busiest times in a bar are a Saturday night after 10 p.m. or a Friday night after 10 p.m. So for my wedding, we went to the venue and we said, hey, could we have during the day the time to set up the wedding before you're open? And then from five to nine, can we have our wedding here? And we will vacate by 9.30, and then you can open up the bar to regular customers and still be open at your busiest time. But what we will do is have a minimum that we will spend on drinks. And so 
for the half hour where people were just arriving and mingling before the ceremony, people had to pay for their own drinks. We we did not have open bar at that point because we did not have a lot of money. We didn't necessarily need certain friends or family members to be wasted during the Drinking that early. Yes. Um, So, (laughs) you know, the first half hour, if you wanted a drink, you had to pay for it yourself. But after the wedding ceremony, it was completely open bar, except it wasn't really completely open bar. It was wine, it was beer, and it was well drinks. So that's how we kept it affordable. And we told the bar, we will, between our friends paying for those drinks during the half hour mingle and the rest of the night, we know we're going to spend minimum this amount of money. We will pay you upfront this amount of money. And they were like, that's great. That's 10 times more than we would ever make between 5 and 9 p.m. on a Saturday right, yeah. night. During <laughs> our dead hours. Yes. Um, and so that's what we did. We ordered in pizza from our favorite pizza parlor because we also wanted it to feel very Brooklyn. We didn't want to feel like this wedding was anywhere else. It's like, yeah. Getting a New York slice and it was yummy. Yes, that's right. And then... We had a local bakery make the cake, and because it was a local bakery and not a fancy wedding bakery, we weren't paying fancy wedding bakery prices. Right. Again, that word wedding, Jolenta, that you mentioned earlier. Get away from that word if you can. Just stay away from that word. We sent e-invitations rather than paper ones, and we did that partly because we wanted to not cause a major ecological footprint with our wedding. We're like, weddings cause a lot of waste to be generated. All of our decorations we got either homemade or secondhand on eBay. A friend who's a florist offered to do the flowers at cost, which was incredibly generous of her. And rather than having a traditional wedding party, anybody whose wedding I had been in before, I said, would you be willing to show up before the wedding and help set things up? Now, I've been a bridesmaid over (laughs) 20 times. So that was a lot of people I could reach out to. Yeah, you got a lot of hands there. With each of those bridesmaids events, I spent over $1,000 on each one between the dress, the shower, the bachelorette party, the wedding. yeah. Yeah. And so I'm like, you know, if each of these people can donate one hour of their time to help set up, that is tiny, tiny, tiny compared to what I paid to be in their weddings. Totally. (laughs) And most of them were very happy to. Or if they were grumpy about it, they didn't tell me. They just played along. Right. (laughs) And so that saved a lot of money too. The music was all done on iPod, I think, or iPhone or whatever the technology was nine years ago. computer, maybe. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And so that was pretty much it. And it was still a really great, fun party. And... It was still beautiful. We made a little movie that played before the ceremony that had movie clips that it made everyone cry. Yeah, it was great. It it was really, really fun. And do you know what the grand total cost was for the wedding, which we invited 150 people to, but 165 showed up? (laughs) The grand total cost of the wedding was $3,600. That is quite good for a wedding. In New York? Yes. (laughs) I I don't know if that's a good price for a wedding anywhere else, but here in New York, Yes. Incredibly good. Yeah. $3,600 for 165 guests. And our producers are saying that's amazing and holy (laughs) crap. So uh, four of us agree. (laughs) Oh, and one other thing. My dresses were all secondhand. Right. And they were gorgeous. One was a vintage 1960s blue ball gown that I got at a vintage shop in the neighborhood. And the other was a gold Tracy Reese mini dress I got on eBay for $6. You can do it cheap and do it fabulously and memorably all yeah. at the same time. Yeah. And and it was really fun and it was really us. And Jolenta, I'll say this about your wedding. 
yours was very you also. It felt right? like you. They were very different, while, yeah. even though they were at bars near stones throw away from each other. <laughs> but yeah, I, and I would just say to our letter writer here, you say that your wedding's not going to be as much fun because it's not as expensive as your family members' weddings. Expensive doesn't equal fun. I've been to very mm-hmm. pricey weddings that sucked and that yeah. were not fun and that were in some cases very stuffy and in some cases just the mood was off. But Jolenta, your wedding and mine, so fun. And I think they were fun because they were us. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So just trust yourself, letter writer, because you know what's fun. And your family and friends are going to love it because it's going to be very you. Yes. That's all that matters. Let's celebrate love here. Let's celebrate you and do your best to just enjoy it for what it is. It's just the stepping stone to a great next step. Your wedding day is not the happily ever after. It's the first day of the rest of your lives together. Totally. We're going to take a quick break, but before we go, we would be so grateful if you took a hot second to rate us and review us. Let people know how much you love How to Be Fine, and also when you give us a good rating and review, it helps other people find the show, so it helps spread the word. Coming up, a letter writer is being beckoned back to the office in a confusing way. Stay with us. All right, we are back with our second letter of the day. Kristen, take it away, please. All right. Our second letter writer says, Dear Kristen and Jolenta, a few weeks ago, my company sent out an email announcing that as of the first of the month, they would be requiring most roles to be in the office at least two days a week. This, of course, is after three years of remote pandemic era work and a complete 180 from the previous policy, which was essentially, you're an adult, we trust you to decide where you work best. And in my case, that was at home all but one day a week. The email stated that starting this week, your team leaders will be meeting with you to discuss the process, but my team leader says he's still waiting to hear from his manager on how this will work for our small team, which is just the two of us. I get along well with my manager, and he's aware of my concerns, including mass transit commute time, as I don't drive. He also doesn't seem excited about the new policy himself. So now we're several days into the month, and I'm trying to decide. Should I just keep working from home until I get direction? Should I pick a couple days to go in that work best for me? Or is there something else I should do? Ooh, that is such a good question. I wonder if we'll have similar advice or different advice, Chris. Oh, I'm curious. I I mean, I have some advice I can just go in with right now. Yeah, what do you think? Okay, so my advice is talk to your manager. You say you get along well with your manager. And you say you have made your manager aware of your concerns, but your manager's job is to get clarity on this question. Your manager's not not supposed to just be like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Your manager is actually supposed to be finding out this thing. This manager is supposed to be the middleman between what the higher-ups want and you. He is supposed to be managing. He is not doing his job. And that's why you're flopping around wondering, what am I supposed to do? What should I do? What should I do? It's not your job to know what to do. It's your Mm -hmm. manager's job to make it happen. It's your manager's job to advocate for you. And it's your manager's job to relay the bad news if for some reason their attempts to advocate for you aren't going to happen. And this is all my advice. Make sure your manager is doing his job. (laughs) 
And once your manager starts doing his job, the rest will be easy. You can go to your manager and say, this is what I want. You told your manager your concerns, which to me sounds like you were just complaining to your manager. Instead, make requests of your manager. Say, you and I are a small team. We both work well remotely. We both did fine in the past going in one day a week together. Yeah. And considering our team is only the two of us and we know we work well this way, Will you please advocate for us to only go in one day a week? And letter writer, it doesn't sound like it's going to be the end of your whole world if you have to go in two days a week, but it does sound like you want to do that one day a week. Ask your manager what they can do to make that happen. Very good. But Joe, what do you think? What do you think? Am I putting too much weight on the manager here? No, no. I think that advice is totally good, especially if the lack of clarity is making you anxious. But if you can live with some uncertainty, I have different advice. I was thinking, just wait. As long as you've communicated with your supervisor and he's aware that you're unsure of the situation and you don't feel like all of a sudden you're missing like super pertinent things that need to communicate like, hey, am I missing stuff? Like you might as well just wait for direction. If I've learned anything from when we lived by Who Moved My Cheese a few seasons (laughs) back for By the Book is that workplaces don't value workers as much as workers value having jobs because that helps them, like, survive. And while most companies clearly like a go-getter who goes above and beyond and does things without being asked, there is a fine line between being a go-getter and, like, being taken advantage of by your workplace. So I say wait for the call to come in. And in the meantime... Just use this time to keep proving to your bosses, your manager, how well you're doing like with your current situation. Yours is a little more proactive than mine. Well, yours your, yours is like, let's see how long we can ride this out and not have to go in at all. So I see what you're coming, where you're coming from, too. Right, right. That's my method. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, I just don't want to go in even one day a week. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But listeners, we want to hear from you. What advice do you have for this letter writer? Do you agree more with Joe Lente? Do you agree more with me? Would you advise this person completely differently? What do you have to say? Let us know at facebook.com slash groups slash Kristen and Joe Lente. And that's it for this episode of How to Be Fine. Huge thank you to our executive producer, Nora Ritchie, our producer, Chantel Holder, and our composer slash engineer, Casey Holford. Reminder, you can always weigh in on the conversation and see what we're up to on Instagram at How to Be Fine Pod. Until next time, I'm Jalanta Greenberg. And I'm Kristen Meinzer. Thanks so much for listening. See you next week and stay fine. Stitcher.